You're listening to the Real Estate Entrepreneur Podcast with Terrence Murphy, where we cover sales, investing, and entrepreneurship with an emphasis on real estate. Each podcast, Terrence and his guests will bring you informative and inspiring information within the real estate industry. Welcome to another episode of the Real Estate Entrepreneur with Terrence Murphy. My guest today, Spencer Clements, is the founder and president of William Cole Companies. Spencer functions as the CEO and general partner in the hospitality division and real estate division of the company. They include projects like the Stella Hotel, Traditions Golf Club Community, and Lake Walk. He currently serves as the chairman of the board for Destination Brian. A native Texan, Spencer holds an MBA in entrepreneurship and finance from Rice University, where he was awarded the Dean's Recipient Award as a Jones Scholar. He holds a bachelor's in petroleum engineering from Texas A&M University, where he was a president's endowed scholar and was admitted in to two National Engineering Honor Societies. He has held his Texas real estate broker's license for over 30 years. Welcome him to the show today. We're excited to have another episode of Real Estate Entrepreneur. Excited to have a friend of mine. We've been friends for a while now. You're we- old. <laughs> the beard. <laughs> I grew the beard today to look older. But yeah, it's going to be a great episode. I want you to stay tuned. But I'd like to start off, before I make that introduction, I'd like to start off with a, a quote or a scripture that I do every time. So today it will be the big challenge for me is to keep evolving and stay relevant. And that's by Martin Garrix. And you would say, well, what does that mean? What, what does that matter? What's well, a challenge to all of us? Because now we're in the information age. We are out of the industrial age and we're in the information age. And in that, if we're in entrepreneurship, as we're, we're in real estate, everything's moving at rapid speed. And so for us, Spencer and I, we have to keep evolving. And, and that's the only way we're going to stay relevant. So my guest today is the founder and president of William Cole Companies, Spencer Clements. Thank you for coming, bro. Oh, thanks for having me. This is great, Terrence. And thanks for doing this podcast. It's important, you know, talking about entrepreneurship and innovation and real estate. It's uh, It's been a passion of mine for a long time, and I'm glad to see you do it. Man, I'm glad to have you on the show. I know we got a lot to unpack, and I know our listeners are going to get so much out of this episode. But before we dive into the bones of everything that you're doing and the entrepreneurship and the development and the community development, the hotel development, and I can keep going. Tell me your story in a couple of sentences and what led you to real estate? Because everybody has a journey on how they got into real estate. In a, in a couple of sentences, <laughs> you're, you're laying out a challenge. Um, well, my, my parents were in real estate. That's really how I got into it. My, my mom actually sold real estate back in the 70s along FM 1960 in the Houston market. And uh, and so the conversation at the dinner table was always real estate. And my dad was in the hotel business, more on the management side, and ultimately started his own company. So even though I came to A&M to be an engineer, it, uh, I really kind of knew early on that real estate was my passion. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and after not being able to get a job as a petroleum engineer in 1986, when oil was $8 a barrel, I was unemployed. Best thing that ever happened to me really turned me on to entrepreneurship. Uh, and decided to go have a career in real estate. So I went back to school, got a degree from Rice, got an MBA and got into real estate back in the early 90s, been doing it ever since. Wow. And you kind of breezed over that. An MBA from Rice is a big deal. It's not a big deal. It's just a, just a piece of paper, but it's, it's a, it's you a, learned it's, a lot. we learned a lot. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I, I had to have some credibility as a, as a real estate person. I w- was walking people's doors with a petroleum engineering degree, which you know, people say, what the heck do you know about real estate? So yeah. um, I really loved it, went back and learned a lot and got a nice job after that, worked for a few years and ultimately started my own company. But that's a longer story, but happy to <laughs> happy to walk you through it. Yeah, let's keep going. So yeah. 
So we now graduate with our MBA in Rice from Rice. And then we do you start in development? Do you start in commercial? Do you start what segment in the category? Because I get my listeners, they always want to know when I'm talking about people's story. Where do they start? Where do they start? Yeah, I, I started in, in troubled assets. So my timing in markets has been excellent, right? Mm-hmm. I graduated in with petroleum engineering when oil was $8 a barrel and nobody was getting a job. And then I graduated from Rice in 1990. Uh, right at the height of the RTC, Resolution wow. Trust Corporation day. So all the savings and loans had failed. Houston was a see-through city with all these office buildings that were uh, empty. And, uh, and I went into real estate consulting with a really good firm. And we went all over the country uh, doing troubled assets and, and looking at how deals can go bad. Mm-hmm. And as a young person, that was really an eye-opener for me, learning on other people's mistakes, mm-hmm. you know, how a deal can go bad and then how to value that. So I was up in New York for months at a time valuing uh, non-performing real estate that the savings loans and banks had taken back. So, wow. you know, no internet, no cell phone, trying to figure out, you know, like get a manila file folder on my desk and that asset might be an office building in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I had to sit there and say, well, how am I going to value this? I had to get on the phone and talk to brokers and talk to appraisers and talk to property managers and find out, are the tenants even in place? What do the leases look like? And then run a a pro forma and then discount it back and then do it again the next day on the next property. Wow. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. So what lessons did you take from really being a part of almost like an REO kind of season of mm-hmm. real estate, right? What, like, what are some lessons that you learned from that? Because you probably can relate it up to 2008, 9, and 10, probably in a, a, a different capacity, but I bet it had similar characteristics. No, they're, they're, you're going to have cycles. Yeah. I mean, you're going to see the cycles, and, you, and we've seen them here recently, where you know, lenders will lend a little bit deeply into a cycle. You might get a little bit oversupplied, and you might have a little bit of a crash, or you might have a big crash, and then you do it again. And, mm-hmm. and, uh, and there's definitely a lot of money to be made on the buy side in the down markets. And mm-hmm. so the people who have the fortitude and the, and the courage to go out there and acquire assets when everybody else is running away from those assets – uh, usually do pretty well if those assets are well positioned. You know, be careful in development. I'm a developer and, uh, and we can talk hotels here in a minute, but, you know, hotel development's not for the faint of heart, obviously. And But in development, you're really putting something out there at today's cost, today's basis. Mm-hmm. And uh, and that's a little, it's a little riskier. Make right? a change. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So in the evaluation process, if you were to walk me through how you did one of those evaluations for the novice, right? Like if I were to say, Spencer, walk me through one of those deals that you looked at. Could you give me some steps and kind of just a bird's eye view of how you would evaluate one of these, you know, properties? Sure. We, we looked at everything. Yeah. I mean, we looked at nursing homes, we looked at land, we looked at golf courses, we looked at office buildings, apartment projects. And so we had to get to be somewhat, uh, you know, conversant in these property types, uh, even though we weren't experts, but we had experts on our team. Mm-hmm. And and you would want to quickly learn the market. Yeah. So if, for example, let's go back to that office building in Tulsa, Oklahoma, right? And mm-hmm. you, you look at the market and you say, well, am I in downtown? Am I in a suburban market? What does it look like? What are the market occupancies today? What is my occupancy today? What does my rent roll look like? You know, mm-hmm. my tenants, credit tenants, do I have any tenants at all? And so you just start breaking down that asset into its geography, into its competitive set, and into its, you know, its unique selling proposition, right? Which is a, you know, something we hear in all kinds of industries. But why this building? Why would this building be attractive to somebody? Yeah. Um, can I honestly give it market rents today? Or am I going to have to discount it because it's, you know, it needs some refurbishment? Uh, maybe I'm going to get above market rents because it's on, on a really cool corner. Mm-hmm. It's in the hot spot of town. 
but really understanding how that asset is going to be competitive in this environment. Wow. And then you start running your, your cash flows. Yeah. I'd like to keep expanding on that. Sure. Because I'm telling you, I think the biggest thing that I've learned about our listeners, like they'll read books and they will do audible, but when they can have an interactive conversation and, and get knowledge from that, mm-hmm. That's the reason I started the podcast. I had so right. many people reaching out and I couldn't keep up with trying to walk them through these. How do you do it? Real estate principles. Right. And so I think you're hitting something that we need to cover and it sure. needs to be on. So I want to expand on that. So once you went through location, rents, you know, even how is the building built? Is it built structurally well? All those mm-hmm. things you talked about. Then once you kind of came up with your own evaluation, then what happened? Like, did you, did you guys bring in asset buyers? Did you take it to... Wholesale buyers, like what did that look like after the fact? Yeah, we were actually doing um, bond sales. Mm. And so it was a it was a kind of a unique deal is that you were taking all these real estate assets, the savings and loans had foreclosed on and the federal government had taken control of. And then they were underwriting bonds based upon the ability of these assets to perform financially. And so our group's job was to look at these income producing properties and see, are they even going to be able to produce income, right? Can Mm. they even do it or when can they do it? Uh, So we would run a discounted cash flow analysis where you look at your expected revenue and your expected expenses in year one, year two, year three, all the way out to year 10. Mm -hmm. And then we would discount that back. Uh, based upon the risk in that market and the risk for that asset. And so wow. sometimes we're running 20% discount rates, sometimes 25. Yep. But we really pounded these assets. Mm-hmm. I mean, we really just hammered their values. Yeah. And put them through a stress test. Yeah, put sure. them through a stress test. And so you might have a building, say, that was a $10 million, you know, new construction building. It might have been valued in, in those times at a million and a half dollars. Wow. Or $2 million. And so they would put these assets then into the pool with income coming off of them and then sell bonds against that. Or sometimes they would just sell the assets in large pools to investors. And so, you know, yes. So these large investors that took big risks and bought these assets for dimes on the dollar did very well, did very well for themselves. Um, So buy low, sell high is pretty basic economics, but uh, it taught me a lot in that formative stage of my career that things can go wrong. And, um, but it also taught me that if you hang in there, things can go right again. A lot of these assets were valued at a million and a half dollars, say in my example, might be worth 20 million today. Wow. If you just had the staying power to get through it. You just have to know how to position it. You have to make your bet at the right time. And then you have to realize that, uh, you know, there's no guarantees once you step in, but you got to step in. Yeah. At some point. Yeah. At some point. Yeah. And I like what you said, discounted cash flow. For my listeners out there, I I know Spencer and I are just throwing this around playing, playing tennis with it, but it's taking like it's almost the opposite of a projected cash flow, right? So projected cash flow is all the right things, but like you said, you project it out and then you reverse affect it, right? Well, what you're doing is you're you're bringing it back to today's value. Exactly. So you're you're saying that um, you know if I put money in the bank and I get two percent interest, which I wish we could get two percent interest today, right? We're only getting what zero or point one, but yeah. Back in the old days, we get three or four percent interest if you put your money in the bank. Mm-hmm. Well, that you put a dollar in the bank today, it's worth a dollar three at the end of this year, and then a dollar seven at the end of year. Two. Compound interest. Yeah, it's compound interest. So mm-hmm. if you know if you just run that in reverse, if I have a cash flow in year two of a dollar and seven cents and I discount it back at three percent, it's worth a dollar today. And so, you know, what I'm trying to figure out from that asset is based upon its income stream going forward, you know, what is that worth today? Mm-hmm. And 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 I run a higher discount rate, 15%, 20% because of risk. Right. So, you know, my safe rate today is probably U.S. Treasuries or something like that. But you're seeing properties, you know, you know, in new development could be a 20% discount rate. 
in existing retail, existing uh, industrial properties, the discount rate is far less than that. Mm. So you're basically just risking what you, know, you think may happen in the next 10 years. You don't know if we're going to have another, another COVID. You don't yeah. know if somebody's going to develop a better property across the street from you. You don't know if the zoning is going to change. You don't know if you're going to lose your tenant. So you can't just buy it. Uh, you can't sum up those future cash flows and cross your fingers. You got to bring it back to today's value. Love it. Love it. Is there a way to translate that to today's market, the discount cash flow analysis, or is it only in a market that has assets that? No, it's everything. It's it's everything that we do. So any kind of income producing property, you know, if you look at your three approaches to value, right? If yep. You're going to appraise a property, you know, all you appraisers out there, mm-hmm. you've got your your cost approach, which was what yep. what's it going to cost me to build it, yep. right? So it's going to cost me $2 million to build this property. Great. $2 million mm-hmm. appraised value. Your sales comparison approach. Yep. Well, if I had this product in the market today, what would somebody pay me for it? Mm-hmm. And maybe that yields you 1.9 or $1.8 million, you know, is mm-hmm. what it might yield you. And then on the discounted cash flow, it's simply looking at what's the income, the net cash flow going to be produced off of this piece of real estate, whether it's a hotel or a retail center or an office building or industrial park. And then they discount those cash flows back or do a direct cap. There's different ways to value it. So you come up with three different ways to value and then you come up to a value. But, you know, the discounted cash flow for us is really the best way to do it. We think for an income producing property is the most appropriate value. Now you can do a direct cap which is basically saying my property is already at stabilization. It's already at exactly market rents and exactly market occupancy. And I can sell it today at a five and a half cap or a Mm -hmm. six cap, which means somebody's going to buy it and get five and a half percent annual return on their money or 6% annual return on their money. So that's easy. You take your $100,000 of cash flow yep. divided by 0.06, and that's your number. That's what your your thing is, your building is worth. Yep. Um, discounted cash flows take more into account of, well, I got to lease this property up. Mm. Um, so my first year cash flow is not as much. My second year is gaining so on it. It's a gradual evaluation. It's a gradual. And so in the hotel business is a great example. You know, your first, it takes you about three years to stabilize in hotels. Mm-hmm. So you really can't do a direct cap because you have no income your first year. So real quick, because I actually literally have that in my notes for you. <laughs> cap rate. Cap rate. That's something I always get as people are moving into multifamily, they're moving into commercial. You said it real quick, but I want to I wanna walk through that real quick for our listeners. How do I calculate a cap rate? Like if I were able to sit down with Spencer and Terrence, I know that question would come up. Yeah. Well, you really don't even calculate. Usually the, the market derives a cap rate. Mm. So if you look at today and there's a lot of cash out there, you know, to be invested, and let's say people are looking at grocery store single tenant deals, right? So you might have a grocery store with HEB on a lease, or you might have a grocery store with another, you know, grocer on a lease. Yep. And people will pay you for that. So if you own a grocery store, you own a building that has 15 years left on a lease with a credit, a, a, with a credit tenant, yep. right? Then there's people that are willing to pay you, um, and they're going to maybe price that at, you know, say five and a half or six percent. Mm-hmm. So that's what the cap rate is. And yep. so you take your, if you get $100,000 a year in, in, in net, net lease, right? Yeah. You divide that by 0.06 and that's what somebody can pay you, you know, for that property and make a 6% return on that, on that cap rate. Yeah. Um, so that's just a direct cap method. And so what happens is, is that your cap rates for credit tenant deals are much lower mm-hmm. because your credit's safer and your default risk is lower. And the fact and the, the risk of that tenant going vacant on you is much lower. Yes. If you have a retail building with three local tenants in the building that are local mom and pa's say that don't really have a credit rating, then your cap rate for that building is going to be a lot higher because your, your risk is going to go out of business. And then you have to release that space. It might take you six months and you got to give them more TIs and you got to pay another commission to a commercial real estate agent. So those things go into your analysis. Love it, man. 
Well, and I think, like you said earlier, I mean, if you get a Starbucks, right, that's why you see Starbucks trading, they're standalone Starbucks trading in the low fives, some in the fours. Right. Because it's Starbucks. It's Starbucks. And they usually have 10-year initial term leases with like four or five-year, four or five-year renewal. So usually it's a 20, 30-year lease. Right. That's why the cap rate is so tight. Yeah. And you still own the real estate. You know, yeah. that's what pe- people forget is, well, the lease may only have eight years left on it, but if they say they don't want to renew, you still own that box and you own that piece of dirt and you can lease it to somebody else. Yeah. And so it's a, it's an income stream. You know, it's mailbox money for those people who have wealth who can invest in you know, single tenant deals, but then there's multi-tenant deals. There's huge office buildings with, you know, dozens of tenants in it. And then you get to the hotel business where our rents change daily. Wow. Right. We don't have a tenant in there for a year or five or 10. We have a tenant in there for a night. And so what people like about the hotel business is that you can set your rates to the market on a daily on basis. On a day-to-day basis, like right? the stock market almost. Yes, exactly. In the in the you know office building, or let's say, let's go back to your Starbucks, that rent is set. Mm-hmm. So they're in a 10-year deal and you already know what their rent is going to be in, in year nine. Years, yeah. And you may be over market or you may be, you may have missed the market. Yep. You might get seven years down the road and there might, there might uh, be a $10 gap wow. or a $5 gap in what they should be paying you. And that's why they lock you in. Right? That's why they lock you in and you want to lock them in and defer your risk. Hotel business, you, you, you rent that room overnight, right? And uh, the rates change. Wow, man, that's good stuff. And so I want to keep going on your story. Sure. So now after you've kind of this season of life, you started your own company. There was so much information in there. I wanted to slow down and unpack that. So take me through your progression, your timeline. So now what's next? Yeah. So I left Rice and I worked for this firm for about three years yep. around the country and went to lots of big cities. And And this is what I tell aspiring entrepreneurs, go learn on somebody else's nickel. Mm-hmm. They paid me to sit there and, and run analysis and be a financial analyst. And, uh, and I didn't have to take the risk. I could see, you know, the playing field and, and get paid for it. I then got into the golf business. Uh, I, you know, again, my dad was in the hospitality business and, and I was a golfer growing up and uh, all of a sudden found myself in a, in a master plan community that uh, had a golf course and our company was actually working on valuing that golf course and they tapped me to do it. And that got my motor running on hospitality wow. business. So that's really where it changed for me to get into hospitality. And so you were going there to evaluate it and then- and- I'm in a suit and tie driving down the fairway in a golf cart and thinking this is the coolest thing ever, man. I mean, other people are at an office and I'm out here on a golf course and people make a living at this. Are you yeah. kidding me? Yeah. So there's gotta, this is fun. So I started looking at how to get into the golf business, ended up working for a company, really great guys. Uh, my friends, Jim Hardy, Bill Wallace, and Jack Morgan over at Golf Services Group. And I uh, had a great time with them and they taught me a lot about the golf business. I was their director of project finance for a few years. Mm-hmm. And we did a series of golf courses. Actually, right before I left, we just had approval to do a, a series of golf courses in Tennessee State Parks called the Bear Trace with Jack Nicholas. Wow. Uh, and we set that d- deal up and teed it up and got it going. So today you can go play several Jack Nicholas golf courses in Tennessee State Parks. And that was our little project we did a long time ago. But I always wanted to have my own company. Um, I, I left there. Uh, in the mid nineties, um, I was an interim general manager of a country club. It was kind of an interim project we had. And I got to, um, I got to build a clubhouse. I got to renovate, you know, a golf course. I got to, for the very first time in my career, sit at the end of the table and have all eyes look at me and make a decision. (laughs) And, uh, and that was, you know, I was what, 31 or 32 years old. And, and that was really eye opening for me. It was the first time that I'd been responsible for something like that. Loved it and made a lot of mistakes, but we ended up with a great facility uh, and then started my own company called William Cole. So I started that company. It'll be 25 years this April, um, named after my two sons. 
who were both Aggies, class of 13, Trace class of 13, Cola's class of 17. And of course, uh, they're not, you know, the little kids they were when I started the company, but we still have the firm. Wow. Uh, and so it's been a lot of fun. And my wife, Sharon, has been just incredible. I mean, she supported me in this venture. She would get up every morning, go to work. She's a petroleum engineer and she would get up every morning, go to downtown Houston and I'd stay at home and go upstairs to my office, you know, no cell phone, no internet, no clients, and just pick up the phone and start working. And wow. it's just all about work and effort and, you know, your fundamentals of entrepreneurship at that point. Yeah. When I've told you before over the years, I know we've known each other since I think 08. Mm-hmm. I think we met in 2008, uh, 13 years. Wow. You're an inspiration to more people than you think. For sure, me and Erica. And that's the reason over the years I've always just been inspired by, I would say, how progressive you guys are at your company. I think you guys, the quote I started with, like you're okay with evolving to stay relevant. And that's been motivation to me. It's been motivation to my wife. It's been motivation to me as an entrepreneur. And I know I've texted you off and on telling you that, but I want to make sure I tell you again, bro. That's very I really nice. mean that from the bottom yeah, of my heart. You're, you're inspiring us. I mean, the company you've built and the success you've had and the, how you've changed people's lives and how you are you know, doing things, you know, for our community is, is wonderful. It really yeah. is. And, and, uh, that's what I think people miss out on entrepreneurship or, or business mm-hmm. formation yeah. is how good it is, mm-hmm. how much good it does. Yeah. You know, people like to, you know, talk about greedy entrepreneurs or greedy business owners. These are the same people that are giving back to their community. They're employing people. They're putting their names on buildings. They're putting their names on cancer centers. I mean, it's, it's an, it's an amazing testament when you look at the successful people on our planet. Yeah. So, uh, and you're right there, man, you're doing great. And the risk they took. You yes. Know, but yeah, but yeah, life's not a dress rehearsal, right? Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, that's why I say all the time, life's not a dress rehearsal. You know, you're going to regret the things you didn't do more than the ones you did. Yeah. So go. Go for it. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. So as we progress now, you're in the golf industry, you're doing developments. Let's go more towards what's one lesson you wish you would have known that you know now that you wish you would have known before you got into the development of communities. Well, there's so many things that we've learned. And, you know, I think one of the, actually, it, it was something that people taught me that is still difficult for us to deal with sometimes, which is people will develop. Mm. Um, my attorney told me that, Clark, if you're out there, thank you, um, a long time ago. And, you know, we were looking at doing a, a golf course development, you know, company and do a bunch of different golf courses. And he just looked at me and said, Spencer, you know, people will develop. In other words, just because you put your really cool golf course someplace doesn't mean somebody's not going to put a really cool one right next to you. <laughs> And he's right. That's why your sustainable competitive advantage mm-hmm. is always key in real estate is how are you going to put that proverbial moat, that fortress around your property? You know, what do you have that other people don't have? Out at Traditions Club and Lake Walk, for example, you know, we're in a public-private partnership with the city of Bryan. We're surrounded by Texas A&M on three sides. We have a really nice piece of dirt yeah. that's just geographically well-positioned for growth. Mm-hmm. You know, this university is going to come right through us. And so wow. if you look at that map and you say, okay, if I control this thousand acres or our company controls this thousand acres with great partners, our partners, Peter Curry and Mike Roop and Traditions, my partners, David Seegers and Justin Schultz, and we and our city partners at the city of Bryan. Mm-hmm. You control a really cool piece of real estate, then how can you keep it as a legacy asset? But having that sustainable competitive advantage protects you against future development. Mm. You know, you have a a better location or a more central location. What happens in like, here's what happened in the hotel business and in every market, Houston, especially Dallas, Mm -hmm. uh, where it's easy to develop. There's not a lot of land use regulations. Mm -hmm. 
people will develop. So yeah. we went from about 4,000 hotel rooms in Bryan College Station to almost 7,000 hotel rooms wow. in just a few years uh, because everybody saw how good the market was and they started building properties. And that's Sleepy just, college town. That's just freedom, man. Yep. That's people exercising their freedom. So long-winded answer to your short question, but uh, wow. just realizing that there's a lot of really smart people out there and they're looking every day and it's, you got to stay relevant. You got to be competitive. Yeah. You took the words out of my mouth. I think the biggest thing is being an athlete is very competitive in college is very competitive in the NFL. But what I've learned is business is even, even more competitive. Chess isn't competitive. And the thing is in business, you can't see who you're competing against all the time. Like people right. are moving in the shadows and people are doing things. And there was a time where I wanted to stay in the shadows as I was building my knowledge base and growing my companies. But there comes a time where you obviously people take notice and then you're on their radar. Right. But you hit on something that I want to go back to. So if I were looking to do my first development, whether it's a golf course, five acres, hundred acres, whatever it may be, what would be the top things that you would really kind of go down in your mental checklist that I need to kind of have a, gra a grasp on before I decide to develop? Sure. You, know, you, you need to begin with the end in mind. Mm. And so it all starts with an idea, you know, thoughts are things and you have to begin with an end in mind. So what I mean by that is, is you need to go occupy that space in your mind as if it's 15 or 20 years from now. So vision. Yeah. 15 or 20 years from now, 10 years from now and say, you know, where am I? What should this be? And we always call it planting our flag, you know, just like, you know, the explorers would go plant their flag and stake their claim or stake their mining claim even. How can we stake our claim to where it gives us the best position to fend off all these really great competitors that are out there <laughs> and give this, this project, whether it's a building or a piece of dirt or whatever, a chance to live and a wow. chance to grow and prosper. Wow. So you think about what's happening in a forest where a tree is trying to grow and is competing for sunlight and is competing for water and good soil. And what you see in forests sometimes are really tall, skinny trees and not a lot of branches on them because mm -hmm. they're fighting over. If you can find that clearing area where there's a little bit less competition and you can get established quickly and get your branches out there and all of a sudden it's harder for somebody to come take that sunlight from they're you. So, shade. Yeah. yeah. So we're trying really hard in all of our projects to begin with the end in mind. Wow. That's good. Well, I want to share this because I think it's important. As I was talking through my ideas and my vision and, you know, I'm just so pumped up about it. And I, and I said, Hey Spencer, I got this idea, you know, you got five minutes and um, I called about some lots and you said, man, I, the ink is still wet. Like, you know, like, that, that deal's done. But you said, give me a day. I'll call you back. And you being a visionary, you said, I think I got an idea that I think could work. And um, River Birch, obviously it's only 13 months old and your vision and your helping me create a vision for that street. And I kind of had my vision and, and your wisdom. Even when I showed you the floor plans, you said, hey, uh, we need to look at this. We need to change that. And I didn't, you know, that's the thing I got. I want to remind people, you can never stop learning. And, you know, I've built hundreds of houses. I've sold thousands of houses. But the first thing I said is, okay, I'm going to go change it. And you're like, no, I, you don't have to change it because of me. I'm just telling you. And, you know, that change that you told me, the pivot that I made on that floor plan is the that Brenda A is the most popular floor plan on the, on the block. That's great. You know, and so, and now here we sit at 13 months, we only got two lots left. Now you're flying. It's beautiful. You know, and yeah. because of you guys not only believing in that vision, but you helping me create it. And then, like you just said, create something. And the reason I thought about it is create a moat, put a moat around it. Mm -hmm. And so when we do, when we did the development of River Birch and traditions with our modern contemporary, and I was trying to show you guys my vision, it's so unique 
for someone else to try to redesign those, it's going to be tough to pull off. Right. And I think that's why it's doing so well. But I wanted to hit home on that. Yeah, it's meaningful. I mean, you, you developed a great product and people responded to it and it doesn't look like other products and traditions and that's okay. Mm-hmm. And, and for your listeners, traditions has been around since you know 2004. So it's 17 years old now. Architecture styles change, buyers change, tastes change. Yep. And, uh, and you've, you nailed it with this product. Doc. Yeah, it's been, it's been fun. So I want to, I want to pivot to hotel development. You're in golf, you're doing community development. Where does hotels get involved? How does it get on your radar? Walk me through that journey and then sure. let's talk about a couple of deals. Well, we're really a hospitality developer. If you think of, you know, our company, what we like to say is we create meaningful places and we just happen to have this community here uh, in traditions and now our Lakewalk commercial area that really needed a first-class hotel. Um, Our entire market needed a first-class hotel. Uh, The Hilton, which is a great property, but it was built in 1984. It was the last, you know, full-service property built in Bryan College Station. And so uh, when we built the clubhouse at Traditions, it kind of helped start our residential world on fire. And and we knew that building the right hotel for Bryan College Station in our community would help elevate people's vision and and have them dream a little bit. So mm-hmm. we purposely went in and staked our claim at the top of the heap. We wanted to have the best hotel that's going to survive for a long time. It's a hotel for the next 20 years and worked with great architects and a great team to pull it off. And I think it's a sweet hotel. It, it kind of surprised some people. Yeah. Um, and we're really proud of our property team there. They are uh, just got awarded the third best hotel in the entire state of Texas wow. by Condé Nast Traveler uh, Magazine, their Reader's Choice Award. So there's over 4,000 hotels in the state and the Stella is number three. It's ahead of some iconic hotels like the Emma in San Antonio and some other beautiful properties. And these are the readers, the travelers that are rating it. And that's all, you know, kudos, kudos, kudos to the property team Our you know, our, our general managers and uh, Shane Pappas and our Noble House Hotels team there. So the hotel was designed to do well on its own, but it was also designed to help our entire community mm-hmm. and and be a centerpiece and a place for, you know, connection for people to come together, for people to have a great experience and be able to walk along the lake and see the yeah. fountains and see people walking their dog and go to a cool coffee shop and go, you know what, I can have my company here. Mm-hmm. So here comes Viasat out of California. They had bought some companies here in town and grown them. And they said, hey, we want a regional headquarters for our business and we want to be as close to the Stella as possible. So that's why they were catty corner from us. And then you got iBio, you had Nutribolt, uh, you have, which is now the Innovation Center. You've got, of course, Fujifilm down the street, 530 employees. But that hotel is the centerpiece. And, and hotels historically in your cities were the center of the community. That was where- Of the commerce, everything kind of happened. That's where everybody came to town and yeah. people were proud to introduce them to their hometown hotel. And then what happened over the years is the Marriott's and the Hilton's kind of, you know, uh, generalized everything mm-hmm. and they made everything kind of McDonald's, which is fine. They made a lot of money and some beautiful hotels. But the last few years, it shifted back to boutique and local. And that's what we try to deliver at the Stella. Let's talk about your other hotel real quick, if you don't mind. Sure. I know it's done really well. Yes. And what would you say is the differentiators between what you guys have done at Stella and what you've done with the one in Colorado, right? It's actually in Canada. In it's Canada, in British sorry. Columbia. It's called the Josie. And mm-hmm. uh, and they're kind of sister properties. One's the Stella, one's the Josie. <laughs> uh, the Josie's named after an American girl, which is great. It's yep. a mining claim up at Red Mountain Resort in British Columbia. Uh, it's a, a ski and ski out hotel, one of the coolest places on the planet, a place called Red Mountain Resort in Rosslyn, British Columbia. And they've put more champion skiers into the you know Canada ski ranks than any other hill. 
we worked on that for a long time, got it built, beautiful hotel. Um, it, it's won several awards. It's Canada's top ski boutique hotel, uh, yeah. top three new ski boutique hotels in the world. Beautiful property, but right now COVID has it pretty well shut down. The, the yeah, border is shut, but it's a different market, but the same fundamentals in our business. Yeah. And that is really great design. People respond to great design. They want to be, sure. people want to be places that it's inspire unique. them. Yeah. Very unique. Yeah. And so we have great design there and then a fabulous property team and then the location can't be beat. We're at, we're right at the ski lift. We're right at the chair at the base of the hill. And so we know for the next thousand years, there's not going to be a better, a better location at Red Mountain than that hotel. So earlier you said this and I want to hit this and then I'm going to ask you a couple more questions. You said, you know, with a Starbucks, right, they're locking you in, you know, so you, you have a compressed cap rate because you have a credit a tenant. They may have you locked in for 10 years or eight years and you don't really get to ride the wave up, but you also don't have the downturn. It's a good coupon. Yeah, absolutely. What would you say is considerably different about hotels as an investment property? Because like you said, it's, well, I said it, it's like the stock market, right? You're watching the day-to-day ticker. How do you manage that? What is some strategy behind that? Just very basic strategy behind how do I even evaluate a hotel if I want to buy one or develop one? And then once I buy it or develop it, how am I managing the key performance indicators? Sure. Well, first thing, don't develop one. (laughs) (laughs) COVID times, right? Um, No, I mean, now's actually a really good time to be acquiring hotels, Mm -hmm. uh, unfortunately, for their current owners. I mean, it's just a horrible cycle that we're in. But hotels is very much the same type of, of analysis. Uh, but you're looking at an uh, at a room rate and an occupancy versus mm-hmm. a, a rent, and so if you think you can run you know, an average room rate of 120 dollars, and then your average occupancy might be 60 percent, then you start running the math on that. Mm. It's got its own unique accounting. Uh, it's got you know you got an op- it's an operating business, right? So yeah. you got to you got to clean the rooms, and yeah. it's not a a place where you know the guy at Starbucks walks in and unlocks the door every morning, and pours coffee, and leaves. And you as a landlord really don't have a lot to do. I mean, you have some to do, don't get me yeah. wrong, but in a hotel business, you're running a business. Yeah, and and so business. it's always been a a really strange kind of tertiary property class for investors, especially your big investors, mm-hmm. in that they look at it more as an operating business than a piece of real estate. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it is very complicated, but the fundamentals are the same. What will people pay you for your product? Yeah. Is your product competitive with other products in the market? Uh, can you operate it well? Is it nice and clean? Is it well lit? Is it safe? Is it marketed effectively? Are your salespeople on top of their game? If you have food, is that good? Is it not good? You know, how do people, and what are the ratings going to be? Because in today's market. That matters. Oh, I mean, it used to be, it used to be that you didn't know. Yeah. You go to a restaurant or a hotel and you had no clue until you experienced it. But now, yeah, it doesn't take you 30 seconds to get all the negatives or all the positives on the property. And that keeps everybody on their toes. Managing that. Yeah. So it's just a different investment class. And usually what that means is that your cap rates are higher because investors perceive more risk in the property because all of a sudden COVID happens and boom, you're empty. Right. Yeah. So that can happen overnight. So cap rates should probably be around eight to ten percent. They typically are. Yeah, they yeah. typically are. And in today's market, it's it's really non-existent because people just are not operating at their market rate because of COVID. You know, yeah. once we get past COVID and people travel again, then hopefully this will settle out. Yeah, that makes sense. So, am I drawing a blank, or is Revpar have? Is there a Revpar deal? Yeah, revenue per available room. Yeah, which could, is, you, could you walk me through that concept because that's sure. something that's come up. 
Yeah, a re- times. revenue per available room is simply the combination of your average daily rate and your occupancy. So I'll give you a quick example. If you're running an average daily rate of $100, so you're mm-hmm. a hotel that sometimes sells rooms at $80 and sometimes sells rooms at $120. Yes, sir. But your average rate's $100. Yep. Okay. And then you're on average, you're running a 70% occupancy. Sometimes you're full, sometimes you're empty, but overall you're renting seven out of 10 available rooms. Mm -hmm. Then your revenue per available room is $70. It's a hundred dollars times your 70%. So you take that $70 and you multiply it by how many rooms or keys we say in the business, how many keys do you have in your hotel? So Mm -hmm. if, uh, and that'll give you your, your revenue, you know, potential for that hotel. So you got 70 keys and your revenue, your revenue per available room is 70 bucks and 70 times seven, uh, 70. And that's your, whatever, 4,900 bucks. If I'm doing my math right, that's your revenue per day for for that hotel. Just gross that up. Correct. Love it. Love it. RevPAR. So you look at a RevPAR index and, and, uh, you know, we look at RevPAR index all the time with, what is our ref park compared to our competitors? Mm-hmm. And is our index at one or above? That means we're doing better than our competitors or are we below our competitors. And it's mm-hmm. it combines your occupancy and your ADR. And so you don't get the big head and go, oh man, I'm killing it. I'm, I'm running a 90% occupancy. I'm, I'm so much better than my competitors. Well, they may be running a 60% occupancy, but their rate is so much higher than you. They're actually putting more to the revenue line. Wow. And is there a place to go generally to to track that over? Yes. Yes. And so there's, there's all kinds of data uh, compilation firms, but uh, there's a company called Smith Travel Research that does a great job of compiling that for the market. And they survey all the hotels and then we get an aggregation of that data. Probably a quarterly report. We get it weekly. Oh, wow. We actually get it weekly and and certainly monthly. Yes. Yeah. No, that's good. Yeah. Wow. So what do you see as the next, like the biggest opportunity in real estate in general in the next 12 to 24 months? Like, where do you see like as an opportunity? Yeah. Well, we're, um, we're pretty specialized and I mean, I think definitely on the buy side mm-hmm. in, um, in hospitality, yeah. you know, restaurants and hotels for those who, who are, are brave and bold and, uh, have some capital. It's an interesting time. Your, you know, your last mile deliveries are pretty hot with Amazon, things like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, industrial of course is really hot right now. A lot of distribution with yeah, you know, all these things. But for us, it's community development. And so, you know, for us, it's bringing companies to Bryan College Station and and aggregating companies here and for our little community, putting more things in place that make it, make it meaningful. You know, people mm-hmm. buy into communities because of quality of place. And so that's what we're endeavoring to build. So our opportunity here is to deliver more uh, market rate product for young professionals mm-hmm. and families. And you certainly have been helping with that. Our opportunity is to uh, build out some more restaurants, possibly a grocery store, bring another company in. Uh, and so we're really more community-based developers here than yeah. we are programmatic product-type developers. That makes sense. Um, I know your multifamily guys are really cranking at the moment, and so are single-family, so good for them. Yeah, those industrial, multifamily, and single-family are yeah. on fire right now for sure. Yeah. yeah, so entrepreneurship. We've talked about development. Yeah. We've talked about the real estate. Sure. What's your passion behind that? Like what drew you to entrepreneurship and, and why does that matter in today's? Now it's just a corollary for life. I mean, it's just a parallel to your life. It's, it's so powerful. I learned a lot about it at Rice from a great guy named John McCormick, who was founder of Visible Changes. And he introduced me to a book called Law of Success by Napoleon Hill. Oh, yeah. And Law of Success, uh, you guys can go Google it and read it, look at it on uh, YouTube. Um, but Napoleon Hill was incredible and basically interviewed 500 leaders at the time and, and came up with a philosophy of why these people were successful. And it's, hey, it's save your money. Mm-hmm. It's cooperation. It's golden rule. It's 
perseverance, it's leadership, it's imagination, creativity, working well with others. I mean, it's fundamental things that we learned in kindergarten, right? Yeah, that people seem to forget. They seem to forget. <laughs> and so for me, the, you know, casting your fortunes out on the sea and saying, I'm going to go see what I can do with my life and my family's life and see if I can help my friends and see what good I can do, knowing that it's going to be hard. Mm-hmm. That's been the most fun part about it is yeah. you, you know, it's, it's going journey. to be hard. It's a journey and you learn. And I love what you said in the trailer is that there's only wins and lessons. There are no wins and losses. There's wow. wins and lessons. One of the things you learn uh, early on is there's temporary defeat mm-hmm. and you don't call it failure until you quit. And mm-hmm. you mentioned that in the trailer. And, you know, have we been temporarily defeated in the hotel business? Absolutely. We've been just kicked in the teeth, but we're not done. No. You know, I could, I can curl up in the corner and suck my thumb and, you know, and say I quit, but. And go to another industry. But not going to do it. No, you know, yeah. I got too much responsibility. I, we created this thing. We brought it into the world. It's ours. We have to, we have to own it. We have to love it. We have to live it and, and make it better. And so our journey is to. I'm about to run on the field, man. Yeah, I mean, I'm about we, to run we gotta, out there and tackle somebody. You got to do it, right? <laughs> I mean, you, yeah, if it's time to tackle somebody, you tackle somebody, right? And it's just saying that, you know. I'm dug in. I'm not going anywhere. Yeah. Right. I mean, uh, Mr. Huddleston, you know, Junction Boy came to this university in the early 50s from dirt poor IRA in Texas. And, you know, uh, Bear Bryant tried to run them all off at Junction. Right. Mm-hmm. He wrote a letter back to his wife. He said, honey, they couldn't run me out of this place with a shotgun <laughs> because he had nothing to go back to. Yep. So you burn your ships. And you say, if I created it, I own it. It's my responsibility. And so we're dug in on the hotel side. But entrepreneurship is, you know, who are you becoming? Yeah. It's not what are you doing? And that's if there's one message I can get across to young wow. to young entrepreneurs out there uh, who are listening to Terrence's great podcast is when you're working out and you're doing those last few reps or you're running at night and it's cold and you got that last half mile to put in. Or you're studying really hard and you're taking a tough class and you're just almost tired of it, but you got to persevere through. Don't ask yourself, what am I doing? That's the wrong question. Mm -hmm. The right question is, who am I becoming? Mm -hmm. Who am I becoming? I'm becoming a person of character. I'm becoming a person who doesn't quit. I'm becoming a person who is going to be able to know that I can handle the tough times ahead. Yeah. Wow. And that's entrepreneurship is is just, you know, not quitting. Yeah. Stacking wins on top of wins. Yeah. So like we said, I I love that because I always say like, it's just wins and lessons. Yeah. Wins and lessons. You and know, only losses if you quit. Yeah. And then, and then why do you do what you do? Yeah. You know, that was I, my next question. Yeah. yeah good. Well, uh, one of my, one of my favorite quotes and uh, old Eagles fans will remember the long run. There's a line in the song, the long run said, you know, you do the crazy things that you do, right? He said, um, you know, why do you do what you do? Do you do it for love? Did you do it for money? Did you do it for spite? Did you think you had to, right? So, Think about why you do the things that you do and what's the highest calling. And so if you're in a career and you're doing it for money, that is definitely a calling and you can do a lot of really good things with that money. And Mm -hmm. I'm all about making money. I love making money and I want people to make a ton of money because they can give it back to their communities and help people, employ people. But if you do what you do for love, that's really the highest calling. If you really want to help your community and, and hire great people and help great people. And that's why your company is successful, Terrence, because you love what you do. Mm-hmm. It's not a means to an end. You're not just out there trying to make a, a bunch of money. No. 
And you see people who did that and they made a ton of money and they were still not fulfilled. Mm -hmm. And that's sad. Yeah. Yeah. It's really sad to get to the end of a career and go, I, you know, I'm, I'm worth $3 billion, but I'm still not happy. I'm still not satisfied. I'm not filled. You know, that's just not what we're about. No. We're about helping people find meaning in their lives through architecture and through design and through hospitality operations. And it's really fun. You know, it's hard sometimes, but it's also fantastic sometimes. I, I know I'm telling your listeners here how hard it is, but sometimes it's just wonderful, right? Yeah. It's great. I mean, some of the best experiences of my life are working with guys like Terrence and my friend Howard Katkoff or Red Mountain Resort or, you know, our buddies who helped us with these hotels. I mean, it's just amazing. It really yeah. is. Because you get to see something come to life. Oh, you get to create it. I mean, yeah. it's, it's our baby. I mean, I got a golf course in Maryland. It's like my third child, right? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I walk that, I walked that place. I walked that sand and gravel pit for hours and days and weeks. Didn't have two nickels to rub together and yeah. dreamt it. Yeah. And now today, they didn't even know who I am. It's an adult. It's moved on. I could walk in the doors and nobody there would know who I am. But that place existed only in my mind. Wow. Right. Only in my mind. And now it's an adult. It's flown the coop. And uh, they wouldn't know who Spencer Clements is at all if I wow. walk in the door. But uh, it's my third child. Wow. That's the visionary in you. That's the vision that God gave you. Well, it gave everybody. I mean, you fly over any city and look down, you see a bunch of buildings, right? Somebody, somebody dropped them. Right. I mean, anything yeah. you look at the microphone you're talking into, somebody, it was an idea in somebody's head. Wow. And that's entrepreneurship. Yes. And so, you know, what I think, you know, people fail to recall or, or understand is that everything you see, every business you see was created by somebody. Yeah. Wow. Um, and you can do it too. I love it. You can do it too. Man, it's hard to follow that up with a question, but I will. Go for it. <laughs> Man, this has been awesome, brother. Final thoughts for our listeners. If you were to leave them with just a, a thought about real estate, about entrepreneurship, about sales, about investing, how would you, how would you package that up? Well, I think you would, I'm going to, I'm going to put it back on you, my friend, um, that look at Terrence. If you guys want to look at how somebody gets to be successful in their life, and rule number one is people do business with people they like. Mm -hmm. And there really is no rule number two. This all boils down to a relationship business and a people business and, and how you behave, how, what you say about other people, how you react to hard times. If hard times come your way and you start blaming everybody else. It's the coach's fault. It's the, yeah. you know, the sun was in my eyes, you know, my gloves weren't you know, ready and, you know, I, you know, the trainer didn't wrap my ankle correctly. And no, I, you know, I, I dropped the ball. It's on me. It's on me. Yeah. And, and so it, you got to take responsibility, but people do business with people they like. And, and Bob Faith of Star taught me that a long time ago. And that's what I would tell people is all starts with that. So if you want to be somebody that people respect, be likable, take an interest in their lives, be considerate and try to help them be successful mm -hmm. along the way. Applaud their wins, right? Don't be jealous if they make a lot of money. Be happy for them if they make a lot of money. For sure. And, and I think that would be it. People do business with people they like. Oh, that's great. Well, man, thank you for being on the show. It's going to be a great episode. And man, thank you again for your friendship over the years and your encouragement and really a business partner. Thank you for everything, man. Yeah, yeah, yes, you're sir. welcome. But uh, you're doing great. You're blowing by what we've ever done, and uh, it's it's a lot of fun to watch you succeed. So we're here to help. Yes, sir. Thank you, Spencer. Thanks for having me. Yes, sir. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Real Estate Entrepreneur with Terrence Murphy. Please subscribe on whichever platform you are listening, and consider leaving a five star review, as that will help us gain traction and continue to bring you knowledge in the real estate industry. For more content, head over to TerrenceMurphy.com. 